Chapter 9 Under the Constellation of the Robbers When I again reached the village in which my followers had taken up their quarters for the night, I did not hesitate to waken them, and at least a couple of hours before sunrise the caravan was on its way. On the twelfth day, about the hour of noon, we reached a charming valley in the wooded region of the Vedisas. A small river, clear as crystal, wound slowly through the green meadows. The gentle slopes were timbered with blossoming underwood, which spread a lovely fragrance all around. Somewhere about the middle of the extended valley bottom, and not far from the little river, there stood a Negroda banyan tree, whose impenetrable leafy dome cast a black shadow on the emerald grasses beneath, and which, supported by its thousand secondary trunks, formed a grove wherein ten caravans like mine could easily have found shelter. I remembered the spot perfectly from our journey out, and had already decided on it as a camping place, so a halt was made. The tired oxen waded out into the stream and drank greedily of the cooling waters, enabling them to enjoy the tender grasses on the banks all the better. The men refreshed themselves with a bath, and, collecting some withered branches, proceeded to light a fire on which to cook their rice. Meanwhile I, also reanimated by a bath, flung myself down full length where the shadows lay deepest, with the root of the chief trunk as a headrest, in order to think of varsity, and soon, as it turned out, to dream of her. Led by the hand of my beloved, I floated away through the fields of paradise. A great outcry brought me abruptly back to rude reality. As though an evil magician had caused them to grow up out of the soil, armed men swarmed about us, and the neighbouring thickets added constantly to their numbers. They were already at the wagons, which I had ordered to be drawn up into a circle round the tree, and had begun to fight with my people, who were practised in the handling of arms and defended themselves bravely. I was soon in the thick of the fight. Several robbers fell by my hand. Suddenly I saw before me a tall, bearded man of terrifying appearance. The upper part of his body was naked, and about his neck he wore a triple garland of human fingers. Like a flash the knowledge came to me. This is Angulimala, the cruel, bloodthirsty bandit chief who turns villages into heaps of blackened timbers, reduces towns to smoking ruins, and devastates the wide lands, leaving them as desert wastes. This is the one who does away with innocent people and hangs their fingers about his neck. And I believed my last hour had come. As a matter of fact, this ogre-like being at once struck my sword out of my hand, a feat which I would have credited no creature of flesh and blood with the ability to perform. Soon I lay on the ground, fettered hand and foot. Round about me all my people were killed except one, an old servant of my father's, who was overpowered and, like myself, had been made prisoner without a wound. Gathered in groups round about us, under the shady roof of the gigantic tree, the robbers indulged themselves to their heart's content. The crystal chain with the tiger eye, which was torn apart in the struggle with Satagira, it was a chain which my good mother had hung round my neck as an amulet at parting, was rent from me by Angulimala's murderous hand. But much more distressing was the loss of the Ahsoka flower, which I had constantly carried over my heart since that night on the terrace. I believed I could see it not far from me, a little red flame in the trampled grass on the very spot where the youngest robbers ran hither and thither, carrying to the revellers the streaming flesh of oxen which had been hastily slaughtered and roasted, and which was even more agreeable to the thirsty passions of that coarse throng, calabashes filled with alcoholic spirits. 
It was to me as though they trampled on my heart every time I saw my poor Ahsoka flower disappear under their foul feet, to reappear a moment later less luminous than before, until at length I could see it no longer. I wondered whether Varsity now stood beneath the sorrowless tree, pleading for news. How good if she were, that it could not tell her where I then was, for she would certainly have yielded up her tender spirit and died had she seen me in such a condition. Not more than a dozen paces away, the formidable Angulimala himself caroused with several of his cronies. The bottle circulated freely, and the faces of the robbers, with the exception of one who, of whom I will speak later, became more and more flushed while they carried on conversations full of noisy animation and excitement, and now and again broke into open quarrel. At that time, unfortunately, an understanding of the language of the robbers had not been added to my many accomplishments from which one may see how little human beings can discern what acquisitions are likely to be of most service to them. How more than glad would I have been to be able to comprehend the gist of their raucous talk, for I did not doubt that it concerned me and my fate. Their faces and gestures showed me as much with gruesome plainness, and the tongues of flame which from time to time flashed over to me from beneath the dark bushy brows of the robber captain brought home with much bitterness the loss of my amulet against the evil eye, which I could now see gleaming amongst the severed fingers on the shaggy breast of the demon king himself. My feeling was not at fault, for, as I later learned, I had cut down a favourite of Angulimala's before his very eyes, one who was, moreover, the best swordsman in the whole band. The captain had only refrained from killing me on the spot for the reason that he wanted to slake his thirst for vengeance by seeing me slowly tortured to death. But the others were not inclined to see such a rich prize, which belonged by right to the whole band, uselessly squandered in any such way. A bald-headed, smooth-shaven robber, who looked as though he might be a priest, struck me as the man who chiefly differed in view from Angulimala, and the only one who understood how to curb the savage. He was also the only one whose face retained its composure during the drinking. After a long dispute, in the course of which Angulimala sprang up a couple of times and reached for his sword, victory fell, fortunately for me, to the professional aspect of the case. It should be mentioned that Angulimala's band belonged to the clan of robbers known as the Senders, so called because it was one of their rules that of two prisoners one should be sent to raise the money required for the ransom they demanded for the other. If they took a father and son prisoner, they bade the father go and bring the ransom for the son. Of two brothers, they sent the elder. If a teacher with his disciple had fallen into their hands, then the disciple was sent. Had a master and his servant been caught, then the servant was obliged to go. For this reason, they were known as the senders. To this end they had, as was usual with them, spared my father's old servant when they butchered all the rest of my people. For though somewhat advanced in years, he was still very active, and looked intelligent and experienced which indeed he had proved himself to be, seeing that he had already successfully conducted several caravans. He was now freed from his fetters and sent away that same evening after I had given him a confidential message to my parents from which they would be able to see that there was no deception about the matter. But before he set out, Angulimala scratched some marks on a palm leaf and handed it to him. It was a kind of pass of safe conduct in case he should fall into the hands of other robbers on the way back with the money. For Angulimala's name was so feared that robbers who dared to steal royal presents from the king's highway would never have the audacity even to touch anything that was his. My chains were also soon taken off, as they knew well that I would not be so foolish as to attempt an escape. 
The first use I put my freedom to was to fling myself down on the spot where I had seen the Ahsoka flower disappear. Alas, I could not even discover a remnant of it. The delicate fragment of flaming flower seemed to have been trampled to dust under the coarse feet of the robbers. Was it a symbol of our life happiness? Comparatively free, I now lived with and moved about amongst those dangerous characters awaiting the arrival of the ransom which had to come within two months. As we were at that time in the dark half of the month, thefts and robberies followed upon one another in rapid succession. This season, which stands under the auspices of the terrible goddess Kali, was devoted almost exclusively to regular business, so that no night passed without a surprise attack being carried out or a house being broken into. Several times whole villages were plundered. On the fifteenth night of the waning moon, Mother Kali's festival was celebrated with ghastly solemnity. Not only were bulls and countless black goats slaughtered before her image, but several unhappy prisoners as well. The victim being placed before the altar, and having an artery so opened that the blood spouted directly into the mouth of the terrifying figure hung about with its necklace and pendants of human skulls. Thereafter followed a frantic orgy, in the course of which the robbers swilled intoxicating drink with complete abandon until quite senseless. During the course of this bacchanalian, the band amused themselves with some of the sacred dancers, known as Bajadares, who, with unparalleled audacity, had been carried off from a great temple nearby. Angulimala, who in his cups became magnanimous, wanted to make me happy also with a young and beautiful Bajadare. But when I, with my heart full of varsity, spurned the maiden, and she, overwhelmed by the slight put upon her, burst into tears, Angulimala flew into a frightful rage, seized and would have strangled me then and there, had not the bald, smooth-faced robber come to my help. A few words from him sufficed to make the iron grip of the chief relax, and sent him away, growling like a scarcely tamed animal. This remarkable man, who thus for the second time had become my rescuer, although his hands were still bloodied from the hideous Kali sacrifice he just conducted, was the son of a Brahmin. But because he had been born under the constellation of the robbers, he had taken to that same trade. At first he had belonged to the thugs, but went over, for spiritual reasons, to the senders. From his father's family he had inherited, so he told me, a leaning towards religious practices. So, on the one hand, he conducted the sacrificial services as a priest, and people ascribed the unusual luck of the band nearly as much to his priestly knowledge as Angulimala's able leadership, and on the other hand he lectured on the metaphysics of the robber nature, in systematic form, and not only on the technical side of it, but on its ethical side also. For I observed, to my amazement, that the robbers did have a morality of their own, and by no means considered themselves worse than other men. These lectures were delivered chiefly at night, during the bright half of the month, at which time, apart from chance occurrences, business was quiet. In a forest clearing, the hearers arranged themselves in several semicircular rows about the praiseworthy Vajrasravas, who sat with his legs crossed under him. His powerful head, barren of all hair, shone in the moonlight, and his whole appearance was not unlike that of a Vedic teacher who, in the quiet of a starlit night, imparts the esoteric or secret doctrine to the inmates of a forest hermitage. But on the other hand, many an unholy and bestial face, and in truth that of many a gallows-bird, was to be seen there in that circle. It seems to me, brother, as though I see them still at this moment, as though I hear again the seething of the sounds of that gigantic forest, 
now swelling in the long rumblings of the far-off storm, now sinking to the gentle sigh of the night wind as it goes to rest amid the lonely treetops. At intervals, the distant growl of a tiger or the hoarser bellow of a panther. And above it all, clear, penetrating, marvellously quiet, the voice of Vajashravas, a deep, full-toned bass, the priceless inheritance of the countless generations of Udgatas, the sacrificial singers of the Vedas. To these lectures I was admitted because Vajashravas had conceived a liking for me. He even went so far as to assert that I, like himself, had been born under the robber's star, and that I would one day join myself to the servants of Mother Kali. It was also for this reason that he claimed that it would be of value for me to listen to his discourses, as they would unquestionably waken to active life the instincts slumbering within me. On such occasions I thus heard truly remarkable lectures from him on the different sects of Kali, usually called thieves and robbers, and on the activities which distinguish them from each other. No less instructive than entertaining were his other descriptive remarks on themes like the value of courtesans in hoodwinking the police, or characteristics of officials of the upper and lower ranks open to bribery with reliable notes as to each man's price. Irreproachable testimony was borne to his particularly keen observation of human nature as well as to his severe logicality in drawing conclusions by his treatment of the question how and why rascals recognize one another at first glance while honest men do not, and what advantages accrue to the former from this circumstance. Not to speak of his brilliant remarks on the stupidity of night watchmen in general, a stimulating reflection for beginners. The sleeping forest would ring again and again to such choruses of laughter that the robbers flocked together from all sides of the camp in order to hear what was going on. The master also understood how to handle dry technical questions in an interesting fashion, and I recollect really fascinating dissertations on how to make a breach in a wall without noise, or how to excavate a subterranean passage with technical accuracy. The proper construction of different kinds of crowbar, particularly of the so-called snake jaw and the crab leg hook, these were most graphically described, and the use of soft stringed instruments to discover whether people were awake and of the wooden head of a man thrust in at the door or window to ascertain whether the supposed burglar will be observed. All such things were thoroughly discussed. His development of the theory that a man, when carrying out a theft, must unquestionably take the life of everyone who might bear witness against him, as also his general consideration of the statement that a thief should not be afflicted with moral talk and conversation, but, on the contrary, should be coarse and violent, occasionally abandoning himself to drunkenness and immorality, I count amongst the most learned and witty lectures I have ever heard. In order, however, to give you a better idea of the profound mind of this truly original man, I must repeat to you the most famous passage from his Commentary on the Ancient Kali Sutras, The Esoteric Doctrine of the Thieves, a discourse of all but canonical importance. <laughs> 